This week, we welcome David Sherry and Tara Schaffler from Princeton University to discuss their InfoSec World 2020 presentation, Making Security Programmatic and Cultural. In the Leadership and Communications section, why 67% of companies fear they can't sustain privacy compliance, how using an old-school paper planner changed my life, or in my case, runs my life, how to attract top talent in a competitive hiring market, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Week. Cybersecurity isn't only about stopping the threats you see, it's about stopping the ones you can't see. That's why Microsoft Security employs over 3,500 cybercrime experts and uses AI to help anticipate, identify, and eliminate threats. So you can focus on growing your business and Microsoft Security can focus on protecting it. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Microsoft Security. With over half of enterprise security budgets going towards detection and response in 2020, the challenge is investing in solutions that can scale, migrate, and adapt with your business. Cloud-native security solutions from ExtraHop are purpose-built to help your team respond to threats across the hybrid attack surface. Everywhere your enterprise exists today and wherever it goes tomorrow, ExtraHop is there to secure it. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 163, recorded February 17th, 2020. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado, waiting yet another snowstorm. It's also President's Day, which means both Paul and Jason are out. That means I have a new co-host for this one joining me remotely, is the original host of this show, Mr. Michael Santarcangelo. It's like what's old is new again. It's uh, it's always delightful to be here with you, Matt. Uh, glad you could fill in for me this week. I was out last week, so this is kind of repay, I think, for, for me being out. And anyways, I, I, I ended up on the better side of the deal. I got you for a co-host. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Join us at InfoSec World 2020, March 30th to April 1st at the Disney Contemporary Resort. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World Main Conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020. Click the register link to get our discount code. Click the book link uh, to schedule your micro interview as we will be recording down there as well. And also, Paul and I are hosting the Container Security Summit on that Saturday, March 28th. Before the conference begins, if you're interested in speaking or joining a panel discussion, please email either Paul or me. All right, this is an InfoSec speaker uh, interview. So David Sherry serves as the Chief Information Security Officer for Princeton University. He leads the Information Security Office, which has responsibility for security architecture, engineering, operations, risk assessment, compliance, business business continuity, disaster recovery, and awareness and training. Tara Schaffler is the Information Security Awareness and Training Program Manager at Princeton University. Tara has over has been at Princeton for over 15 years, spent the last eight focusing on training and technical communications, and over the past three and a half years, she has built a robust security awareness and training program from the ground up. David and Tara, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So what I want to start, this is going to be a presentation that you're going to do at InfoSec World. At the end, we'll, we'll kind of let people know when you're speaking. So if they're at InfoSec World, they can come check you out. But you have a pretty unique story at Princeton University, where for a long time, you didn't have a security program at all, like into 2016. Uh, and then I think, David, you came over to start. Give us a little of the history of the security program at Princeton, kind of when you went over and kind of walk us through kind of a high level of, of the, the approach you took there, because it's pretty unique. Okay, thanks. So uh, let me set the record straight that up until 2016, Princeton mm-hmm. was not a vast wasteland of security. They were doing IT security with excellence from architecture to design to monitoring to even deprecation. Uh, but they really did it as a distributed area throughout the IT group and never really had a focus on what it meant to be a world-class security program. 
there was a CISO that was here for a short time before I was fortunate enough to come here, and uh, she had to leave for personal reasons. So I came down Route 295, I mean, Route 95, about 280 <laughs> miles from Providence to central New Jersey and joined the Princeton staff in 2016. And at the time, it all started with a vision that was shared between the CIO and myself to make security programmatic and cultural throughout the university. So programmatic that it was plugged into everything from hiring someone to getting a new copy machine to uh, uh, assessing a new risk for a new hosting provider and making it cultural that everybody understood security was part of their role, that the security office were the experts, but everybody had to maintain a security posture in order for us to be successful. So we put this team together uh, in October of 2016. Um, no operational responsibilities whatsoever. I always say, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> um, as a CISO and having no responsibility, we had forensics and internet response, and hopefully you didn't have to use that too well. Mm -hmm. But it was our job to make sure that security became cultural, that people knew that it was part of their job, that we gained influence, that we gained mm -hmm. trust, that we created the partnerships, that we under uh, get to the point where everyone understood what our role was and what their role was before we started doing traditional information security posture like security operations. A little bit unique. Um, I think we accomplished it faster than most people yeah. thought we could do it. And um, we really started to make uh, an impact on this campus. Yeah. So now we're, you're about, what, three and a half years into the program now. Mm -hmm. I yep. think you said earlier that now you're going to start to take on some operational responsibilities. And our first question was why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's the right thing to do, Johnny. I mean, uh, every security guy loves to have threat hunting and incident response and all the dashboards and having their phone go off in the middle of the night. That's, that's what we live for, right? Um, no, I really think because of the reputation we built, because of the success that we had, three years of unqualified success, um, best-in-class risk assessment, uh, best-in-class training and awareness program that's getting just all sorts of publicity nationwide in higher ed. The next step was to do make a best-in-class, world-class operations for security operations, where my, it was under my authority with my associate chief information security officer and a terrific manager of engineering and operations to do advanced threat hunting, do incident response, uh, get the right tools in place, and just show that we, once again, can increase security and reduce risk throughout the university with the actions that we're taking. The time was right. Well, we're really excited about it. I think we're ahead of where I expected us to be about six to eight months into it. And, you know, maybe in a year or so, we can come back on and tell you the success we're having in that area as well. Yeah, and it took you, like you said, three years of success building trust. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I want to dig in a little bit because, Tara, I think this is a lot of what you've been doing mm -hmm. over the past three and a half years is, is starting to build that, you know, the programmatic side, but also changing the culture and the awareness and a lot of the other things. So kind of walk us through the approach that you started with three, over three years ago, and, and we'll kind of dig into kind of the steps you took along that journey. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I came over. I had been at Princeton, as you know, for um, at that time about 12 years. And I, I came over to the information security office and realized that, wow, we um, we have a lot of work to do. Yes. And so one of the first things we did was make sure that we revamped our website, that we really built our resources, made those all available. Then we really just tried to figure out the lay of the land. And I think knowing what you are really dealing with and your and figuring out your communication channels is number one. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about that in our presentation. It's really about knowing your audience mm -hmm. and being able to then effectively communicate to your audience. Mm -hmm. So figuring all that out, figuring out the lay of the land, and then really just getting out there. So we mm -hmm. did not hesitate. We did plan, but then we were out there within three months of the creation of our office mm -hmm. and out there doing trainings, visiting departments and um, trying to piggyback on any events that we could mm -hmm. really uh, get into at the university mm -hmm. and just making people aware of who we were right. and what services we offered. Mm -hmm. And then again, really just opening their eyes to mm -hmm. the threats that we are mm -hmm. uh, actually experiencing here. Yep. Branding. 
Laptop Branding. stickers, <laughs> yeah. uh, campus-wide mailing for the solution that Tower built called the Fishbowl. So within three or four months, people knew who we were, mm-hmm. what we stood for, and could identify us by our logo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting. You didn't have security operational responsibilities. So what were some of those things that people would contact you for in the early days as part of that communication and start building that trust with the new security office? Yeah, so I know one of the things um, is uh, with our data classifications here at Princeton, I know we get a lot of questions about that. People get a little bit tripped up with that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just general just um, information security best practices, we got called out to several departments just to be able to report out on that and really help train folks. Sure. Yeah. Risk assessment was a big one. Uh, to come in, we we actually did a, uh, not a campus wide, but a majority of the campus we did a full blown risk assessment to a, uh, look at their data, their access, mm-hmm. their machines, their support contracts, uh, hosting facilities. So that that was a big one. Um, scanning, some consulting for research uh, data yep, too. Yep, for research data projects, we started acted as a consultant for best practices in that storage and to maintain uh, the security and the privacy of the information they were collecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike, I want to give Michael a chance to get in here because I know he's got a lot of questions, too. I don't want to monopolize the whole interview. <laughs> hey, you know what? You're you're so good at it, Matt. It makes it easy. But l- <laughs> let's go back to it for a second because we talked a little beforehand, too. One of the things I think is fascinating about higher ed in particular is that the challenges, the struggles you have to deal with are exceptionally diverse. You've got a huge population, and it's. I think you've said it's a little bit like running a small city. Yeah. That largely means you have to influence without direct authority. So let's go back for a second. As you're reaching out, your first three months in, mm-hmm. a lot of folks in the CISO position today are struggling with that. They'll say, well, I want to reach out to the business. I want to I want to connect. I want to let them know I'm here. Mm-hmm. You guys were super successful at it quickly. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have to somebody listening? H- how do they reach out? What are, what are some of the things that you did or said that worked well that you think somebody who's not in higher ed might be able to leverage for their success too? Yeah. So in higher ed, we have a saying, relationships are currency. Mm -hmm. And without those relationships, uh, having a cup of coffee, a handshake on the way out after a business meeting, it would be hard to get your mission and your strategy across. When I came down 95, uh, I had to make sure that I wasn't the outsider with the Boston accent that no one wanted to talk to. So my first 40 days of working, my first 40 working days, I had 92 meet and greets Mm -hmm. with uh, everyone that the CIO wanted me to meet with, the provost wanted me to meet with. Uh, After I would stop meeting with people, they'd say, oh, you have to talk to so-and-so. So So I automatically had 92 people in the first two months Mm -hmm. that I could reach out to and call upon. The interesting thing was every one of them had a story uh, whether it was a complaint about the help desk or a complaint about uh, central IT or security or the uh, Xfinity or <laughs> Fios, it didn't really matter. Everybody had some kind of uh, story. And I could either walk them through a solution or I would often go back and talk to the right people and uh, OIT or research it myself throughout the night and come back with a solution to them. So I started making those connections that we were people that we could rely upon. And I started laying out my vision and I would get feedback on that. And a lot of those people actually I used as reviewers of my first three year strategic plan. And they really appreciated the opportunity to comment on the thoughts they were having. So the relationship started really early, really quick. Pick some low hanging fruit, establish a good connection, get them involved by reading some of my papers right off the bat. And uh, that has continued and actually has expanded quite a bit. Yeah. I was going to say, one of the things I love to do is kill them with logic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) It's all about education and Mm -hmm. people really recognizing that the threat is real, that Mm -hmm. we are a target here in higher ed, and that we all need to play a part in trying to protect our own information, the information that we steward for the university. Mm -hmm. So those are all things that I think was really really important for us to get that message out. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we really try to market ourselves as a customer service driven department. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really try to extend our hand, not be the department of no, right, David? Not 
in the we, we want to be able to help people do their jobs, but do it securely. Mm. So absolutely, those are things that we really try to push out there because I think there's an old school kind of mentality of the information security office that yeah. we are just, you can't do that, mm-hmm. you know? So we're, we're really trying to be very customer service focused. Yeah, it's actually almost in my job description that I can't say no to a good idea, <laughs> for instance. Um, I have to say, that's a great idea. Let me help you to securely enable that data or securely enable that project so that Princeton's reputation stays stellar. We, I can't tell a faculty or a researcher or an undergrad who could possibly change the world 20 years from now. I can't tell them no, because it's not the right thing to do. We just have to figure out the most secure way of handling it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I think is interesting is you take you embrace a concept we have on the show, problem solution value, and you actually applied it is in these meetings, right? You were out talking to the different constituents across the university, understanding some of their problems. Yeah. You looked at ways to solve those problems. That that low hanging fruit, as you talk about, that drove value for them, but it also built a level of trust that they could bring a problem to you. You would look for a, a solution that would work, thus creating that trust in the organization that you needed to establish to continue your success. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it goes a really long way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we are actually having success in areas that traditionally might not have had success like computer science and applied math and astrophysics that have some really smart people and great IT teams that they're reaching out to us, looking for our expertise and our partnership to get some of their projects done, which is really exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Michael, I know you've got more. Yeah, I, I've actually got two based on some stuff you guys shared. Let's uh, let me see. Let's do this order. So, Tara, when you guys were reaching out to people, or maybe this is for both of you, did you encounter the, okay, that all sounds great, guys, but security owns that. I, I've got a job to do. It's not security. How do you start helping people understand that they can play a role in it, even though they may not own it, or did you not encounter that? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, David, do you th- how d- did you encounter that much? So I think, Mike, that's uh, certainly something that you have to fight no matter what organization you are in, business, banking, uh, healthcare, insurance, whatever. It's, yeah, that's security's job. The interesting thing is, you know, in higher ed, it's very decentralized or can be mm. very decentralized as well. So you don't get too many pockets of that. I haven't had it yeah. too much. I'm thinking really, I'm like, yeah. I have a good example for you. They I, don't want to have to think about their endpoint protection or they don't want to think about their passive scanning agent or other things that we throw on the desktop. They do want security to just take care of that. But they recognize that in an age when you've got phishing Mm. hitting your inbox and you've got phone calls coming over your desk that looks like it's coming from Princeton that they say they're from Microsoft support. It's not just, uh, it's not just the security department. Everybody has to play a role in this. Yeah. Yeah. We've had pretty good adoption with that kind of mentality. Mm. It seems like people really do recognize that it's a different environment now Mm. and that we all really have to kind of watch out and be, you know, be vigilant. Follow-up question, possibly related, because you're having really good success now with people reaching out to you. One of the things a lot of the CISOs I work with struggle with is they don't have enough time. There's Mm -hmm. too many meetings. There's too many opportunities for coffee and follow-up, and that they are in demand, and they feel like they can't say no, or maybe they shouldn't say no, can't say no. Mm -hmm. But there's only so much capacity. How do you handle that? How do you how do you handle? Yes, I love that idea. Let me help you do it securely with the fixed resources and and the time and the energy of the team that you have and the projects that you're trying to get accomplished. Right. So first of all, Mike, I say bring it because I don't want to <laughs> turn people away. Um, we just deal with it as best we can. If it means additional staff or what have you, I mean that's just the nature of the beast. We all have too much work. I've got a tremendous staff that goes above and beyond. Uh, to satisfy customers, to get their work done. We think as a team, we act as a team. If you know, I'm off for a day, I can rely on my associate CISO and Tara to step right up and, and jump into whatever is necessary. We have um, a request line that comes in. It goes to the entire team. Tara does the triage on it, but whoever has the expertise jumps in. Mm-hmm. Um, The time demands are never going to go away. We can say, all right, we're going to work nine hours a day and then we need 10. We're going to work 10 hours a day and we need 11 and now we're going to work on Saturday. So we just have to manage it appropriately. Um, The one thing about higher ed is people are forgiving when you let them know what's going on. Hey, great idea. 
we've got a little bit of some projects that we have to finish. We'll get back mm-hmm. to you in two weeks. They accept that. Um, if they need something quicker, we address our, you know, our calendars as yeah. well. Um, perfect example of this is we have this great process called the architecture and security review that we implemented. This is a proactive risk assessment that not is just architecture and security anymore. It covers privacy, firewalls, contracts, user experience, uh, audit and compliance, internal audit, all sitting around the table, talking with the business owner, the data owner, and the vendor and doing an assessment using you know world-class tools to come up with mm-hmm. the risk to the university. Demand is outpacing supply. Um, we try to do this every Wednesday. It's only February 17th. We've already done 20 this year. I think we have 33 <laughs> scheduled through the end of March. We just have to stop finding the time to do this. This is one of the greatest risk reductions that the yeah. university has, and the community is just embracing it and wants our expertise. I know. I love that. Yeah, we can't, we can't say we don't have enough time. We have to, we have to tell them we we're scheduled the now until yeah. April, and they have to accept that. But uh, um, we, just, we just get it done. I mean, time demands are hard for everybody. We say bring it. <laughs> yeah. So, so two follow-ups, Tara. You do the triage. What are some of the things that you look at, or give us some insights to how you triage this and set expectations with the person making their quest, as well as with your with your colleagues and your team. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I make sure that um, I try to be pretty timely with things. Look at them immediately. Try to um, you know reach out to whoever I feel has the expertise to to work on it so that they have plenty of time to jump right on it. There's a lot of things that I have to say, um, you know, I don't believe in recreating the wheel. So mm-hmm. if I if I know that that's a standard answer, that's something that we've talked about many times, even if it's somebody else's expertise, I can jump in and take care of it, I will. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things is if you can just get it, get turn it around really quick, that's fantastic. There are other times that things tend to be a little bit more technical or they're kind of one-off situations mm-hmm. and they're a little bit more tedious. And I know that I'm going to have to talk to David or I'm going to have to talk to our, our associate CISO. Mm-hmm. And that way, I, I think really the best thing is, like David said, is to be able to get back to the customer right away and say, listen, this is going to take a little bit more time. This mm-hmm. is something that we want to look at really carefully and let them know that that we are working on it and that we just want to come up with the best solution for them and make sure that it is a well thought out mm-hmm. solution and right. that we do you know, make sure that mm-hmm. we're not duplicating efforts on anything and make sure that we're delivering the right answer. Mm-hmm. So I think it, when people understand, again, kill them with logic, right? So make sure that they understand maybe what we're dealing with on our side, if it's going to take a little bit longer uh, and uh, you know, or if we we've got other things kind of, in front of them that just have to be taken care of. Most people are pretty good about it. And yeah. if it escalates and if they need something else sooner, they're usually mm-hmm. good about pushing back and saying, listen, mm-hmm. this is a really big deal. And then we just have to adjust. Yeah. Princeton is a delightful place to work. Uh, everybody is focused on Princeton excellence and understands time demands. And everybody wants to do the right thing for Princeton to yeah. keep our reputation up. So That's as long great. as they get an email back and say, hey, we're working on this or here's the way we're going to do it. Um, it, it usually goes a long way. Tara is an expert at assessing cultural impacts of some of the things that come in. So thank you. We um, <laughs> we look at the big picture a lot as to how this is going to. This one question could impact the university overall if it got uh, a little bit larger, and we try to sure. address that up front yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. That is very important mm-hmm. to look at the big picture. Right. And what I extracted out of that is just the open communication channel, right? The ability to let people know where where you are in the process, having the ability to have that dialogue back and forth. It's a standard communication principles, right? If everybody knows what's going on, mm-hmm. then then people not won't necessarily get upset, right? They may not right. they may want it faster and there may be reasons why. But if you're having that open communication, it makes the job a lot easier. Yeah. It really does. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's one of the things that I focus very much on. And I actually talk about it in our session as well. Uh, is about writing clear and concise communications because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is super important really all over the, <laughs> the university, but specifically with what we do, especially since things can get very um, technical, mm-hmm. there could be a lot of technical jargon and being able to just take that information and be able to put it into language that everybody understands mm-hmm. and pushing information out to people in a, in a way that they can, they can easily digest. Right. And so we talk about that as well, because 
Nobody has time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have, yeah. we don't have time, David, nope. right? People don't have time. So <laughs> we want to make it as, as painless as possible for people, without a doubt. Definitely keep the pain level low. In, internally in my group, we use an old quote by uh, football coach Don Shula. We strive for perfection, but we settle for excellence. We don't go anything less than the excellence bar. And even with our communication, they are so focused. They are so easy to read. They're done with great graphics. It frustrates uh, people otherwise. And we recognize that, that, I mean, we love information security because we're in information security. Yeah. We, we, mm-hmm. This is what we do. Yeah. Uh, but most people, this is not really at the, mm-hmm. it's not, they don't get up and think about it right away like we do. We, but <laughs> we also make it memorable by making it fun. Uh, we try. Tara has the cyber wheel of fortune. We set up a table outside of what's known as flu fest <laughs> when 6,000 people are going in to get their flu shot and they have to walk by our table. They want to spin, spin the wheel and answer a question and win a prize. And we actually had a complaint from the people who were running flu fest that there were too many people around the security office table and there was stopping the flow of traffic. So <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that complaint anytime. That's true. That was That's a great day. compliment. <laughs> so Tara, so, so tell me this and did you do the, the ability to communicate before you got onto security or is that something yeah. you've learned since you've been in security? It's something that um, in my prior position here at the university, I got really involved in training and writing a lot of technical communications. And as I started writing those technical communications and also working as a SharePoint administrator, I was I was tasked with putting together a lot of different um, events and training. And, and I wound up, I realized again, that people are so busy and that you want to make sure that things are really clear and so I, over the last, I mean, probably eight or nine years, I've really been focused on, again, those t- writing those technical communications and putting it in, uh, in la- a language that's really easier for the, the average yeah. folks. And then also just, just clear even email communications mm-hmm. going out because it has so many people getting confused about different things. And then I wound up becoming kind of the, the, the go-to person mm-hmm. in my old job even to mm-hmm. say, hey, we want read this and, yeah. and clean this up and make it. And people really appreciate when they can just look at something quickly because, again, nobody has time, mm-hmm. understand it, and move on. Mm-hmm. I posted the job description for the training and awareness person and it almost didn't have the word security in it. Uh, I just needed somebody with creativity, excitement, great communication yep. skills, branding, marketing, website design, all of those things. Yeah. And uh Tara comes along. She was actually concerned about putting in for the job anyway, knowing it was a security job. But we I can did. teach her the security. And now she is in demand on our campus for communication uh, excellence. And she's also one in demand <laughs> nationwide in higher ed for what the program that she's put together. So I hired for the right skills and not for the security jobs. Yeah. Now you have the security job. Yeah. And I just yeah. want to take a second and compliment you on that, Tara, because it, that's you. a really rare skill set. And Thank David, you. what a great job to, th- to think that way and to look for that and to recognize that because so, we see a lot of people in security. This is where they struggle and they don't necessarily think that they can hire somebody who doesn't have that big security background. But Tara, right. as you pointed, because you've said a couple times now, as we in security think. So uh, congratulations. We've thoroughly converted you and you're, yeah. you're part of it now. And, and yeah. that's great. Yeah. But I just I want to take a second and again, just what you're doing is really impressive. And I hope a lot of people paid attention to both sides of that because this is something I think will help a lot of people in, in their uh, in their approaches and in their organizations and such. Yeah. So this Thank is a you. great talk. I, I I hope a lot of people, I hope they fly. I hope you get the same sort of response to the Wheel of Fortune or um, uh, maybe you should just bring that with you and uh, <laughs> set it up yeah, in Orlando. Yeah. 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 Well, we talk about that also in our talk at um, InfoSec World. Mm-hmm. We, we talk um, quite a bit about just kind of, you know, inf- influencing people and being able to communicate with people better. And mm-hmm. I, again, it's just, and I talk about my, <laughs> about my, my kind of original, um, just trying to plan and, and, and get started with this job and going from being really excited to really scared and wondering <laughs> if I did the wrong thing because I didn't have an information security background 
And it was a little intimidating. And so I tell that story as well. And then kind of how we went and, you know, I, how I got over that hurdle. And um, so, yeah, there's a little, there's a little drama there. <laughs> there's always a little drama with Tara. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So let's see. Yeah. We, we want to see that at InfoSec World. So when are you speaking at InfoSec World? Give us a day and time. So anybody attending that wants to see the story can hear it. Okay. So I believe it is Monday, April 1st, is it? No, I think it's March 29th. (laughs) Don't listen to me. (laughs) March 30th. Monday, March 30th at 4 p.m. Monday the 30th. Monday the 30th at 4 p.m. Okay. Monday, March 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern time because we are in Orlando. Eastern time. We we have one of the last presentations on Monday before you can run out to Epcot. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. David and Tara, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Always a pleasure. And with that, we'll take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Most breaches are caused by exploiting oversights and basic cybersecurity fundamentals, but complex hybrid multi-cloud infrastructures make cybersecurity hygiene challenging. Red Seal can help. It shows you what's on your network, how it's connected, and the associated risk across public cloud, private cloud, and physical environments. With Red Seal, you'll get control of your cybersecurity fundamentals so you can protect your organization from the inevitable attack vectors and reduce your cyber risk. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Red Seal. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Michael Santarcangelo. Attend RSA Conference 2020 next week, February 24th to 28th in San Francisco. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020 to sponsor an interview with us. We still have a few slots left on site or still register using our discount code to save $150. We'll be in Broadcast Alley all week. Please stop by and come see us. We'd love to see you. Also, please join Ocean and Security Weekly at Salve Regina University Pell Center on Wednesday, March 18th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. for Ocean Cybersecurity Exchange Day. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Ocean, O-S-H-E-A-N 2020 to register for free. Okay, Michael, let's do some leadership communications article. We haven't done this in a little while with you, so it'll be interesting to get you I know. I've been looking forward to this. Matt, I always loved it when you and I did this together. We we think similarly and and just different enough that it. I always thought it was good. And I think everybody enjoyed it. So, uh, I'm I'm super pumped, and I'm ready. Well, I, I took I good. took notes. Okay. I wrote stuff down. I highlighted things. I you know I'm trying to be useful here. All right, I love it um, because I don't have the other two to banter with, so I have to banter with you. This first <laughs> article, I like part of this article. I didn't like part of this article, but I brought it. Uh, because I thought there was an interesting part of the story that I wanted to get out. Why 67% of companies fear they can't sustain privacy compliance? Look, we know the challenges with compliance in that you know everybody gets ready for an audit, they put all the documentation together, they pass the audit, and then things change. And so there is this concern issue with, with compliance as a project, not as a process. Okay, I get that. But what's really interesting to me here is privacy regulations with GDPR, CCPA, and I think more coming. This is going to be one of those emerging areas that companies are going to struggle with. How do I keep data private? And the article points out that you know knowing where your data is and where it's going is a big part to data privacy. And I think this is a lesson for a lot of people to learn from because this is where I, I, I see a lot of uh, challenges coming in the near future for CISOs and organizations in general. Oh, you know, I, I think you I think you nailed it. And, and, and you said something I thought was interesting, right? How many organizations today know where their data is? 
I mean, it, it took me a while to understand the difference between structured and unstructured data, but unstructured data proliferates. And so, and this gives an example in it about, you know, look, a well-intentioned employee is going to take something, they're going to put it on their laptop, laptop may or may not be compromised, it may get shifted to a home computer or not. We've seen a, a fair number of breaches over the last decade or so where that's exactly the case of what had happened. But you know what this also didn't talk about? It didn't talk about what harm has actually been done so far, you know, or it talked about the cost and fines. And it did that same thing that I really wish we did less of in the world. Like, well, it's already a big number. The numbers and GDPR fines that came out so far are pathetic compared to what everybody promised they would be. And so then it says, well, I mean, they're going to ramp up now. It won't be lenient next year. I think if that's the approach that we're taking in the organization, it's not going to work. It's it's the, what we call beating that compliance drum over and over and over, right? And you and I like to talk about value. We like to talk about problems and solutions. It feels like we need more discussions around this at that executive level to say, hey, are we valuing this data for people? Um, and by the way, are they expecting us to protect it? And And what are our roles here? Because it's nuanced and it's not small. Even when we saw big fines, the $5 billion Facebook fine last year, it did nothing to Facebook. It didn't change their practices. It is a cultural issue. Do they want to protect data privacy or no? In their case, the answer is no, because they can monetize it and they can make more money than any fine is going to levy on them. And I think it's a really interesting dialogue for the C-suite and the board to have on this whole discussion is, do we want to protect our customers' data or don't we? And if we do, then what are the things we need to do to protect that data? And if we don't realize, you might get some fines, but you might also lose some trust with your customer base. That's right. Or or you might not. You know, the thing that we keep looking at is that people like these experiences that are tailored into them. So you can go on any of these sites and it says, hey, well, people also bought, people also read. Here's other things that people with your habits have done and people like that. So the question I think we have to ask broader than just an executive chamber is, so where do we sit as a society? You know, privacy is not new. And in, in the European Union, we used to have safe harbor agreements. I was uh, ahead of the curve, I guess. I, I did. I ran a privacy consulting practice in, in the late 90s, early 2000. And so I'd go overseas. There weren't a ton of Americans there, but we'd sit around. And the big thing I remember was, I mean, it, it hasn't really changed. Like, yes, maybe fundamentally they start with the practice that if you're in business, it's your responsibility to protect it and that person still owns their information. But then go ask them about how they operate the business, how they protect it, how they know where it is, what they're able to do about it. I don't feel like we've really changed in, in 20 years. And I'm wondering, are we focusing on the right stuff? Are we, are we asking the right questions and having the right conversations? Or are, are we subject to legislation and requirements that are costing a ton of money, maybe even creating some new markets, but not necessarily helping us? And I'm not saying that's the case. I just, I'd like to see that question asked a little more frequently. Well, we've seen parts of this over our history as a, as a uh, security industry. So uh, I think you're on to something, but uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. But I, I, can, I can just see this continuing to evolve. Uh, the second article I brought in was, it, look, if you don't think every company is a technology company, then look at what General Mills just did. This is a cereal manufacturer, right? I mean, this is what they're known for. They hire a new chief digital and technology officer. Um, But what I thought was really interesting is that the CIO is going to report to this new role. We're seeing some very interesting investments in C-suites where data and analytics are playing a big part into these organizations. CIOs are reporting to these new roles. These, what I see is this kind of emergence or re-emergence of the chief technology officer role, but in a new way. And it's potential impact to the security folks, right? Because if you think about this, a lot of CISOs still report to CIOs. Uh, which are now reporting to chief digital and technology officers. It's just an interesting trend. Yeah, well, and you know what I noticed in this? Uh, I didn't see the word privacy written anywhere. In fact, what it specifically said was, in the past, we've relied on Nielsen Research and others to give us the data that we need, and we think we could do better ourselves now. And so we're going to go get that data, and we're going to use it to boost everything that we're doing. Right. So go back to the article we just talked about and say, okay, now – as you pointed out, maybe privacy does sit here. Maybe maybe the type of cereal you eat is is important. It's worth protecting. But I do also think you point something. There was an article. We, we don't reference it here, but McKinsey just ran an article on uh, the shifting role of the CIO and how CIOs need to change their leadership to remain relevant. 
I read a lot of it and went, well, I think there's some good advice here for security leaders as well. And so what you're suggesting is as the business continues to shift, the technology is still going to be important. So how we're using it, how we're discussing it, how we're describing it, I think those are the real opportunities. So if you're listening to this now, I always like looking at this to say, what conversation would you have if you suddenly had a new boss or a new boss's boss who was focused on data and analytics? How would you ask them about privacy? How would how would you set how would you calibrate that or take the interview we just had with David and Tara and say what's the vision that you would offer and what feedback would you look back from that conversation and how would that shape what you do next? Absolutely. Yes, agreed. And talking about shaping norms, this next article I thought was it, it's just fascinating to me. It talks about. Uh, incentives yep. and surcharges and how they change the norms. And it, not only from a pricing perspective, but think about this from a compensation perspective, right? We see compensation packages changing, but this concept of by leveraging these approaches, there is a way for us to shift the, the standard norms, which could potentially influence greater outcomes over time. And I thought it, this was just fascinating article to read because I'm like, Look, you can do this from a pricing perspective. When you think about, you know, what how you're pricing packages, you can use this as a compensation component to really maximize what you're trying to shift um, in in whatever that scenario is. Well, yeah, and what I love about this is uh, this got my mind racing, probably like it did yours. You and I always like to look at stuff from a value perspective, and of course, you know, we both pay attention to behavior and how we we shift it. So a lot of times, people talk about taxes versus subsidies, right? You tax what you want less of, you subsidize what you want more of, and this is saying, yeah, that kind of works. Let's look at it differently. Let's look at surcharges versus discounts. So the discount, and it gives an example: uh, if you don't bring a reusable bag to the shopping market, um, we're going to charge you, right? Surcharge, you're going to pay ten cents a bag, or the opposite was, if you bring your reusable bag, we'll give you a discount. What they said was discounts are interesting, but not not as useful in terms of shaping the behaviors. So if you want to shift the norms or you want to change with the way that people behave, look at the surcharges that you charge. But then it had some caveats because I got immediately thinking about, well, how do we get this to work in security? Uh, and then the corollary is, and should we? Like, who's the person in security who should derive this. And what it really talked about was go where the norm is already relatively established. And if you in, uh, if you align your incentive structure to an established norm, you're going to get better compliance with it. And if you are completely out of sync, you will really demolish it and perhaps marginalize people. And so to me, if you read this article, and I think you should, that's the part that I would kind of focus on to say, okay, so are there things we can do here that incentivize people from a security perspective where they get a reward, but it doesn't, it doesn't diminish or marginalize them? And or how do we make this more of the cultural aspect, cultural norm, and then encourage people to adopt those behaviors? I think this is, this is something, this is the kind of thing that I like paying attention to, right? It's essentially behavioral economics, um, but applied uh, into the real world, and I, I think it has. I think it has a lot of. Inf I think it has a lot of insights in there. Just um, don't rush off till you read the whole thing, please. Yeah, and and we talked a little bit about this on Security and Compliance Weekly last week about why not the, the spirit and the letter of the law and why certain regulatory um, uh, policies worked and didn't work, right? And and I think of it in this discount surcharge kind of mentality for a second, right? One of the things I thought was pretty successful was Graham Leach Bliley in maturing the financial services sector to build uh, mature security programs around GLBA compliance. But there was a catch. The banks could sell a lot more stuff they were regulated out of previously, right? Graham Leach Bliley gave the financial services industry a carrot in that there was an incentive to be able to sell insurance and a lot of the other things Graham Leach Bliley opened up, but at the same time put uh, requirements in place to protect data. It was a very I interesting kind of surcharge slash discount incentive in, in this scenario, right? And if you don't balance those right, you don't necessarily get the same impact. And one could argue PCI definitely had a success, but if you look downstream for a second and you look at the smaller merchant, it really doesn't have an impact because the discount surcharge uh, parameters there don't work, I think, at that level. There, there's not enough to really influence behavior there because they just see it as a cost and they don't really see 
a, a way to get that cost back. Anyways, it's kind of a, a corollary to what you were saying. No, I think you I think you nailed it. Well, so let's go look at your other one here. Presenting your data like a pro. What did what did you like best about this? I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts on it, and there's some stuff here I really liked, and there's some things here I was, I've got some warnings maybe, but what um where did you see this fitting in? Yeah, well, I always like to talk about com- better ways to communicate. You we you know we we tend to use powerpoints and we tend to really clutter them with a lot of things. And I thought this article was interesting. Amen. Is when when you when you're putting together a presentation, and this one's really focused on your data. What are some of those things you need to look at for it to really resonate and stick out with your audience? And and I to me the one thing was point number three: share one and only one major yep. point from each chart. We try to shove too much data on there, which makes it really confusing to figure out like, uh, so what am I looking at? What am I supposed to gain out of this? And and I think this works in communication in general. What are your three points you want to get across? Right. This is one point per graph, but as a whole. If you're trying to build a story in a presentation, whether it's data-related or not, what are those three things you want to get across to the audience? And make sure you find a way to highlight them effectively. And that's what I took out of this article the most. Yeah, no, and I, 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 uh, it's funny. We, I circled the same areas. You know, The thing I looked at in the beginning here and what I wrote in my notes as I'm looking at it is um, you know, it said, uh, we tell stories and they're much more compelling when they're backed by numbers. Yes, true for some audiences. What it's really saying is there has to be some sort of a proof. If you're telling a story, even if it's a real story, people want to be brought into it and they like proof. It could be social proof or it could be numbers and that works really well. The other thing I wanted to point out, and, and this is another area I highlighted, said it's, it's your job to explain how the data supports your major points. And that was their lead into the share the one thing. Yeah, but also when you do that, think about it, like run it by somebody else first because I've, we've all sat through those those things where somebody takes a piece of data or they extract way too much, they interpolate way too much, and then they say, okay, now I'm going to conflate it to this other point that probably doesn't make any sense, but aha, that's my point. And everybody else looks at them and says, that's, that's not your point. Here's the risk. If you blow it early, especially early in a slide, they're not, nobody's going to pay attention to anything else you do. They're going to think it's all fabricated and made up and you're just trying to twist the numbers to fit your particular narrative. And by the way, maybe you are. So what I always suggest is if you're going to use numbers, make sure you understand the numbers. And it talks in here about labeling the scales and being clear about it, and et cetera. Yeah, but also be clear about your interpretation. And, and, and if you want people to go on some sort of a logical leap with you, then as Matt just said, know the three points and those need to be stepping stones. And you're going to walk them through that as you go through it. But otherwise, I think it's great. The only thing I would add, because I ask people this a lot when they do data with me, I would say, well, what surprised you about it? And, I, and here's the thing, right? We like surprises sometimes. But when it's stuff like this, especially things that delight us, if you're going through the data, especially if it's something you had access to and you're going to now present that data, I love it when somebody says, I expected to find X. And we didn't. We found Y. And so we dug deeper, and it turns out X. And this is why this is so important to us now. That's a much different story. And people will pay attention to that, especially if you start out with, we expected, but we didn't find it. We got this instead. You're, you're going to naturally draw people in because you're showing them some of that tension, and you're explaining how you resolve that tension. And frankly, as an audience, I like that. Like I, I don't want to know, oh, look, I have this point, and I'm going to make it, and here's a bunch of slides that support. No, it's good. tell me what you didn't expect. Tell me where it got different and how that works out, and that – that's the type of stuff that fascinates me. I like that a lot better. So you yeah, switched to an old school paper planner, Matt? Yeah, I've, I've been on an old school paper planner for a long time. I pulled this article because, you know, we see all these people, you know, with their, their, their note takers all on their computers and their, their phones and all this other stuff. And, and I thought it was interesting. I've been a paper guy forever. I, I can go back to 2009 and pull out my notes from the days I was at Qualys. So here's the pros and the cons, everybody, right? Uh, I write all my notes, but I keep all of them. So if I need to go back and find something, I know exactly where it is. It's sitting in that, that file right yeah. over there, and I can pull it out, and I can look at my notes, and, and I can see it. I'm a very visual person. And what this article points out is that by writing it down, it actually helps us with our memory versus just using the computer sometimes or just the phone it's not the same as actually physically writing it and that is my big thing with me is i 
my notes are visual in that they help me identify what are those tasks I need to work on. They allow me to draw diagrams similar to the, the document you sent me on Friday, right? That's a very important part of how I process data and remember to do things. Yep. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny you bring that up because I, I read this and I went, yeah, I'm the same way. It's, um, you know, I've always experimented with, with different ways of doing stuff. And um, I, I find now that I use somewhat of a hybrid, but even though I specifically bought an iPad so that I could take notes on it, and I do take notes on it, and I, I take them by hand, right? So what I meant was the ability to have a digital device that allows me to travel freely, et cetera. I've found in the last four or five months, I have a big stack of eight and a half by 11 paper on my desk. It's a 22 pound, 96 bright. And it's exactly what I like. I've got three colors of pens that I work with and I find that that works. And what I've done is a hybrid is I now, I have a scanner right on my phone and when I take it, I scan it and I follow it away. So to, to your point, you know, I know right where something is. And a lot of times I don't even have to go looking for it too, too far because I remember it. Here's what I liked about this article too. It talked about having, like, I only have three priorities and they're written down. One of the things that's great is that you can create constraints with the space that you have. Your day has to fit on a sheet of paper. It can't go sprawling. If you look at the way people, um, a lot of folks, uh, and maybe, you're, you know, some of you listening are in this category, you're managing by your calendar. And it's, so, therefore, it's either <laughs> infinite or or not. And what I mean by that is there's multiple things on the same time every day and you get to I guess, pick your poison, but also these task lists. Oh man, they are so long. Now what this doesn't talk about that I found is to be a great benefit of writing it down. When you get to the end of the week, Matt, you can go back over your week and you can actually celebrate your successes. You can see what you got done. The modern stuff, if you're all online, it hides most of it. And all you see is all the stuff you didn't get done and all the stuff burn, you know, going to burden you next week. And that's a miserable way to live. So I, you know, I, I think that, I think that, well, I think you're onto something. I, you know, that's maybe a bias on my part too. But we, there's a lot of science that can't completely explain. We don't know very much about how the brain works, but we know that when you write, you draw a stronger connection. We also know that when you draw, you draw a stronger connection. When you write cursive, you make an even stronger connection. So you know, a lot of times when we try to help people uh, take notes, we have them do it by hand, and and for precisely that reason. Unfortunately, my cursive's no good. I can't read it, so I print everything. <laughs> so I only get part of the benefit, but it's the only way my brain is wired, unfortunately. I totally get it. All right, so let's talk about top talent. I like this article, if you don't mind me starting with it. It was not yeah, what I expected. It. So the article title is How to Attract Top Talent in a Competitive Hiring Market. And obviously, a lot of you that are listening to this are either looking or you're you're looking to hire somebody for it. And what I was really kind of interesting was it talked about using content and how content is the key and that you should you should look at a marketing campaign to attract and find the right people. Uh, and um, I don't know, Matt, I think I think it's a I think it's a genius concept. And I know that you have a background in looking at this stuff. Um, what was your take on it? I mean, do, do you like this as a general idea? So it was interesting because when I first pulled the article uh, yesterday to include it, I was thinking it was going to give us some insight uh, on on you know how to go after talent, etc. I wasn't expecting this to turn into a, a marketing pitch, which is basically what it is. But it's an interesting take, right? So as I was reading the article this morning to summarize it, I said, oh, "I've never thought about it that way, right? We think about we've got to." go out and take a job description and blast it out. And then we've got to get right. resumes to come in and then we go through our fil filtering and then we run them through the process. But what was interesting about this article is that content matters. Like if you're out recruiting somebody, why would they want to come work for you? What, is, what are those pieces of collateral that puts your company in a better light to attract that talent where they actually want to come work for you? Um, I thought that was a really interesting concept, one that I don't think recruiters use enough to really try to attract talent to come in. The second part of that then was then tailoring that message with that content to those uh, to those candidates because now I'm getting personal, but I'm also bringing in some very relevant collateral that really hopefully entices you to want to engage. I thought that was a really unique approach. 
Well, and what's hidden in this is that, you know, and think about that. So I'm going to go figure this out. That means I have to be able to explain the role that I'm hiring for or the roles or the team. And a lot of folks, frankly, struggle with that because we leave it, as you just said, well, I, I have a format and this is how I'm going to create the job description. And I fill in all these things. And maybe there's some jargon, maybe there's not, but they don't, most job descriptions don't read too exciting. And therefore, that's not really what you're going to market. So I've now, at some level, have to go ask more about the team and the problem we're trying to solve and what the what that experience might be like. Now, when it talks about tailoring that message then, that means you have to know who you're looking for, right? And we see a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, at least I see a lot of stuff on LinkedIn that talks about, you know, so you want me to have 10 years of experience, but it's an entry-level position. Wait, what? How, how does that work? And and what this does, though, is it forces you to say, well, who's a good fit? Who who what what are we looking for in this role and how would we know it's a good fit and how would we convey that to them? And the idea here is that when somebody's reading that message, instead of it being very benign or what I call a buffet message where you hope there's something for everybody, which means there's nothing for anybody, the person reading it needs to look at that and say, that's me. Oh, that's interesting. Let me read more. And then it says, okay, so now use storytelling to tell me what it's going to be like at that job. Yes, 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 yes. Let me know what I'm getting into. If I'm going to come and I'm going to interview with you, give me a taste of what to expect. Give me a taste of what the culture is going to be like. Give me a taste of the types of problems you solve or the types of problems you don't know how to solve and why I might fit or not fit. In fact, where would I fit? How would I know what I fit? How are you going to assess my performance? If you could tell me those types of a story, those things are fascinating. And, and, I, and I would love to see more people do that. I'll tell you uh, bluntly, a lot of the folks who reach out to me, uh, either because they can't find somebody or because they're they're trying to find a job and they can't, once you start asking them some of those questions embedded in this, okay, well, tell me more about the role you're looking for. Well, you know, it's a security person. <laughs> Oof, good luck with that. You know, flip side, okay, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go to a job working in security, right? That might have worked 20 years ago, but now it's a different field. Where do you, Where do you fit and why? What size of company? What industry? What size of team? What position do you want? What proof do you have that you can do that? What data can you offer somebody and how can you bring your own story to life? So I would say, you know, to be fair, read this too, if you're looking for a position and say, okay, well, what story would you tell? What's the experience of working with you like? What, how would somebody know? And I don't mean getting yourself prepared for a job interview. I mean, just putting yourself out there and looking for it because I always bristle when people say that we're wired for story. It's a true statement, but it doesn't mean that we're wired to be able to tell stories, let alone good stories. But what I find a lot of times is I think, and I've been pretty clear on this, I don't think we have as much of a talent shortage as we have in information inefficiency. This goes a long way towards solving that. Yeah, what I love about this is we take problem solution value to a different level, right? This yep. isn't about a product. This is about a position, right? And, and if you know your target, your buyer persona, right? In this case, your candidate persona. And you know the problems that the company's facing and how they want to try to solve this and the value of somebody coming to work for the company to help them solve this. It's taking that to a concept we've never really talked about, which is to the individual, to the person, to the role, is part of a recruiting campaign. I think that's so interesting. And on the, on, on the flip side, if I'm a candidate looking, talk about the problems you've solved and some of the value you've there provided you. to organizations to make yourself stand out above all the other resumes that is just, you know, diarrhea of the mouth of all your experience. Just frame it differently. I think it, it changes how hiring can happen in the future. That's that aha hit me this morning when I when I actually went to summarize the article versus what I originally thought. Yeah, no, it's it's a great find. It's a great ad. I was I was really glad you put it there because that, that made a lot of sense. And I think that's I think you got it exactly right. That it's those it's those connections. And then you know, as we learned in our earlier interview, now I can take this and that's how I can help the rest of the organization understand what security does. Right. I mean, like you can the beauty of this is you can repurpose it. You might need to rewrite it or tweak it a bit, but by advertising what you're looking for and being willing to share that with your organization, they get a better sense of what your team does and the the types of problems that you're looking to solve. They might know somebody. You might have an mm -hmm. internal candidate who's excited about it or Minimally, they get a better sense of what you do, and that makes it easier when you bring those new team members in. All of that, it's great stuff. Great stuff. 
And great stuff having you on the show today, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a treat. I, uh, it's always good to talk with you, especially about value. So I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And it was it was neat to be back. And I finally got a background. You know, for so many years, I wanted to have a background. And uh, now that I don't do the show anymore, I have a cool background. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for giving me a chance to, to feel kind of important for a couple minutes. I uh, oh, appreciate that a pleasure. lot. It was a blast. My, awesome. And, and you'll sit in any time, Jason and, and uh Paul are out because it usually happens on Mondays that are holidays that we record. So I always need a good sidekick. So you're my top choice. With pleasure. Happy to be your sidekick, Matt. Awesome. And thank you everyone for joining us. We'll see you in San Francisco next week on Business Security Weekly.